I'd ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And I'm going to be preaching from, from uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 28. Um, but, but really, I've, this is, uh, I'm, I'm actually next week I'm going, to, I'm going to preach on the first 10 verses of chapter 19. It won't be there up on the screen. Um, but I, I think it's helpful to look at the whole thing together because it, it really does belong together. So, so let's, let's look at, at Acts chapter uh, 18, verses 18 to 19, verse 10. Acts 18, 18. <clears throat> After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrae, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he felt, and he, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return too, if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is this Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began prophesying in tongues, speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. May he write eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For in your word we see the advance of the gospel. The advance of the gospel throughout the then known world that eventually extends to us. We praise you, Lord, for your work in and through men like Paul and Apollos and, and, and for Priscilla and Aquila. And we thank you, Lord, for 
their faithfulness to your word and for their faithfulness that, that really in, involved evangelism and discipleship of the church. And Lord, we thank you that because of their faithful ministry and your work in and through them, eventually the gospel came to us. And, and we thank you and we praise you that there is this local church and, and many local churches in Kelowna and our country and around the world as a direct result of the ministry of these men and that one woman. And Lord, we thank you that their ministry continued not just through them, but through countless others who faithfully proclaimed the gospel, who were all of them faithful ministers proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us, the men and women of this church, Lord, to serve you by serving your church here, this local church and your universal church. Help us, Lord, to be faithful stewards of the word of God that has been entrusted to us. And may you work in our hearts even this morning. Lord, to help us to examine our hearts and, and to see ways that, that we need to repent, ways that we need to grow in our service and, and in celebrating the service of others and celebrating what you're doing in other places for the glory of your name. We pray this all for the advance of the kingdom of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ, the only Lord and Savior. Amen. And please be seated. As I mentioned a few moments ago, our passage this morning and for next week really covers the ministry of four people. Some of them are prominent, some less so. That's in several places, some prominent, some less so. And this ministry covers 2,400 kilometers over five years. We see here the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Paul's ministry here is primarily in Corinth on the western side of the Aegean Sea and in Ephesus on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea. Paul is going to spend two, uh, three years in Ephesus and he's already spent, as this passage begins, two years in Corinth. But Paul's ministry is, is just but part of the, the bigger picture of what the Lord is doing in building his church. In each place, each servant is serving the one church, Christ's church. All the while it's evident that really it is the Lord who is building his church. As he had promised in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is continuing to build his church. He's continuing to build his church to this day. When you say the Lord Jesus is building his church, you notice that I use the singular. He's building his church singular. Not his churches, but his church. The local churches that we read about in this passage are but one part of the bigger church, the universal church of Jesus Christ. And in our day, there are countless local churches in many places all over the world and countless servants serving the church. But ultimately, there is, again, there remains one church, the universal church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The diversity of gifting and the diversity and the scope of ministry we see in this passage points to that which we see in our own local church and the other local churches in the city and this country and around the world. The church is a body. And that's how the Apostle Paul describes her in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul uses the metaphor of the human body to describe the church and to describe our interconnectivity in Christ. 
In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the one body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He says again in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Notice again, it's singular. There is one body that is made up of many members. Christ is the head of the church, and we have been placed in his body. We are totally connected to one another in this local church and with our brothers and sisters from every church around the world and throughout history under Christ, our head. So membership in the body of this Christ, in this sense, the body of Christ, it's, it's not optional. When you come to Christ, you instantly become a member of the universal church. Again, there's only one body of Christ. However, the universal church is made up of individual local churches. And in the local church, membership is somewhat different. It delineates those, for example, in Kelowna who are part of Providence Baptist Church and those who are part of Grace Baptist Church and and those who are part of Bethel Presbyterian Church. Those who are members of each individual church have, have responsibilities and privileges that they wouldn't have in another local church. In the context of the, it is in the context of the local church where most of the, the one another commands of the New Testament are lived out. This is a big part of the reason why we as a church are developing our church membership covenant. Because we want to, to remind each other and to reinforce the fact that we are covenanting together to worship God together and to live unto God together. But there are people who, who float from, from church to church. Or those who stay at one church and never stay, never commit to serve in the church. Others grumble about the opportunities of service that others have or about the lack of service from others. And all of this is, is totally contrary to what it means to be a member in the church. So in the, the local church, we, we live out our, our primary Christian relationships. We are to operate as And we are to love each other and to serve God together in the gifts that he has given us to help build his church. And in the the universal church, we are to remember that we still belong to each other and that we all belong to Christ. And so we praise God for the victories in other churches and we pray for their needs and we seek to serve as the Lord gives us opportunity. We're all very different. But our differences must not affect our unity. We gather as individual local churches because we have differences, particularly in our understanding of church practice. Things like believers' baptism and and church polity and philosophy of ministry are, are not primary issues. They're important, but they're not primary There are are a number of faithful, Bible-preaching, Bible-believing churches in the city, but we covenant together here because of our shared doctrine and our shared practice. But there is unity and diversity, right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all are made to drink of the one spirit. Now, when Paul here speaks of of baptism, he's not speaking of water baptism or the Lord's Supper. He's referring to what happens to all believers at their conversion when they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 
There's another work of the Holy Spirit being that of being filled with the Holy Spirit that is subsequent to conversion. It refers to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to seal and sorry to enable us to bear fruit for God's glory. But all believers as a Pentecost are dwelt with the Holy Spirit as the the sign and the seal of our salvation. Paul says that the church is made up of eyes and ears and hands and feet and that we all serve the church in various ways that, and that no body part should think they are less important than the other parts of the body and that no body part should think that they are more important than the other parts of the body. All the parts of the body are vitally important. So why this focus on, on 1 Corinthians? Well, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in order to address the divisiveness within the church of Corinth. And he wrote it, he wrote these things during his time in Ephesus, the season that we're dealing with here in a passage this morning between, between uh, Acts 18.18 and 19.10. That's when Paul wrote the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And his letter to the church, the first letter to the church in Corinth involves some of the people that we are discussing here this morning. And it arose through them or because of their ministry, through, though through no fault of their own. Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church was necessitated because of the division that was taking place among the Corinthians in part of the, of the alignment of some that the church in Corinth had with him and others were aligning themselves with Apollos. This is the main part of the reason why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. This alignment with an individual person and their gifting and their individual ministry is a hindrance to the health of the one true church. In 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13, Paul strongly admonishes the Corinthians. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He continues, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then in chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, he says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So as you think about this passage here at the end of of, uh, Acts 18, the beginning uh, next week of of chapter 19, Lord willing, let's keep these things in mind. Let's think about about who Paul is and what Paul's ministry looked like and and who Apollos is and what Apollos' ministry looked like. Also, we see the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila to Apollos and the impact that God had through them in his life and then the impact that God had on others through his life and through their ministry. In this passage, there are three main scenes. We'll deal with the first two next week and the third one, the third one next week, Lord willing. Verses 18 to 23. Paul's ministry in Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Asia. And then in verses 24 to 28, Apollos' ministry in Ephesus and Corinth, and Priscilla and Aquila's ministry to Apollos. And then in verses 1 to 10 next week, Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Uh, this was a long introduction, and it's a, it's a long, uh, those are a long title, so I'm just going to repeat them for those who like to take notes. Verses 18 to 23, again, Paul's ministry in Corinth, 
Ephesus, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Asia. There'll be a quiz after the service. And in verses 24 to 28, Apollos' ministry in Ephesus and Corinth and Priscilla and Aquila's ministry to Apollos. Again, the next week, Paul's ministry in Ephesus. The key thing that we need to remember here is that you are part of the body of Christ. You are part of Christ's universal church. And most of you are part of this local church. There is one body that is made up of many different individuals and many different churches. And these individuals serve different but vital purposes. Like we discussed in our series on the, the spiritual gifts before we began our study of Acts, you are God's gift to the church. You are God's gift to the church. You're God's gift to the church to serve in the ways he has gifted you, in the place he has called you, for the glory of his name. So then let's look at verses 18 to 23. Paul's ministry in Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Asia. It sounds like I'm going to be here for, for months in this, this one passage. It's, but it's just 2,400 kilometers in, in just seven verses. Okay, we'll go quick. This passage begins by describing again the end of Paul's ministry in Corinth. Because of the door that had been opened to him, because of the ruling of Gallio, in his decision not to get involved in Jewish laws, Paul was able to continue ministering in this region of, of Corinth, unmolested by the Roman authorities and unmolested by the Jewish leaders. So Luke says that Paul stayed for many days longer in Corinth. And in actual fact, he was there for over two years. Paul stayed on in Corinth, likely until early spring when, when the sailing season opened and, and ships would begin to, to get out on the, the Aegean Sea again, usually in early March. And so Paul traveled 10 kilometers east from Corinth to Sancrea, which was the main port of the, for the Aegean Sea for, for Corinth, and he set sail for Caesarea. And Paul, we're told, took Priscilla and Aquila with him. They were his co-workers, remember that he had met in Corinth. They were tent makers like him, but infinitely more importantly, they were his co-workers in the gospel. And while at St. Crea, Luke tells us that Paul cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, now we get very little information about Paul's personal life, so, so why does Luke include this detail? This wasn't just a haircut. It wasn't just a, just a, a trip to the barber shop. It might have been a vow of thanksgiving for the protection that he had received in Corinth in God's providence under Gallio. Or it might have been, as many commentators suggest, a Nazarite vow. You, you probably remember the, the Nazarite vow in, um, with the, in the life of, of Samson. He was a very poor example. In fact, broke all of his Nazarite vows. But the details of the Nazarite vow are in Numbers chapter 6, where there was to be no wine or strong drink or contact with a dead body, and there was to be no haircut for the duration of the vow. But at the end of the vow, the one who had made the vow would shave his head and then would offer his hair and a sin offering at the temple in Jerusalem. And this shows us that Paul has not completely separated himself from Jewish culture or from Jewish ceremonial law, but it raises the question of his probable involvement in the sacrificial system, which, is, as I understand it, had no purpose in the life of a Christian. I can't, I can't explain that, so I won't try. 
Paul came then to Ephesus. Now here with Ephesus, we, we are introduced to another very, very important city. In fact, Ephesus is going to become really the center, the new center of the church. Paul, as I mentioned earlier, is going to spend over three years in Ephesus. Ephesus was the, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had a population of around 250,000 people, which was huge at that time. And Ephesus was also the, the capital of that region. And, and as, as such, it was, it was a strategic city because it, it lied along the roads that, that led into Asia. And it was also on, on the shipping lanes from the west. And as such, it was, it was central to the, the empire, the Roman Empire's lines of communication. And it would become central to the church's lines of communication as well. As we'll see next week, Lord willing, that the gospel is going to go out into the whole region from Ephesus. In fact, when you, when you, you look at the, the region, if you look at our, on a map, many of the churches of the, the letter to the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation are in this region. The church to Colossae was, was probably planted by Epaphras from this region, from Ephesus. Very, very important city and very, very important church. But at this time, Ephesus was known primarily for the temple of the Greek pagan goddess Artemis. And her temple was, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Later in Acts 19, we're going to see that the zeal of Artemis worship on the, on the part of the, the metalsmiths, the metal workers in, in the city that was likely motivated more by the worship of money than by the worship of Artemis itself. And so Paul, we're told, ministered to the synagogue. He went into reason with the Jews. And we've seen this again and again. Paul went to the city. His first destination in the city was the synagogue. And where we are told again that he reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He showed from the Old Testament that all of the Old Testament promises of the Messiah were filled, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was indeed the coming Messiah. And we're told that the Ephesians were, were interested in what he had to say, so they, they asked him to stay longer. But he declined. Now this seems strange. When, when it's unlike the, the, the Paul that we know from Acts to, to reject or refuse an open door for ministry. But I think you can see from, from the passage why. He, he wanted to return to Antioch to visit the churches that he had ministered to earlier in his second missionary journey and also in his first missionary journey. But the question then is why the rush? Why is he in such a rush to leave? Why could he have stayed a little longer in Ephesus? We can't say for, for certain, but it's, it's very likely that he wanted to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. And if indeed this was the beginning of, of the sailing season, which, which started in early March, he didn't have much time to get there before the Passover began. Nonetheless, Paul said that he, that he would return if the Lord willed. And so he left Priscilla and Aquila there to continue to minister until his return, and he set sail. And he landed at Caesarea. And you remember Caesarea, it's, it's on the coast of Judea. And this is, this is where where Peter had previously ministered and where the, the church was founded, where, where, where Cornelius was. And so Paul landed at, at Caesarea there on the coast and we're told he went up and greeted the church. So what does this mean that, that Paul went up and greeted the church? 
Well, archaeologist William Ramsey explains that the terminology of, of going up and coming down refers to Paul's going up to Jerusalem. And he's very likely right, especially when combined uh, with the use of, of the term the church. He doesn't, doesn't specify which church. And, and so at that time, it would have been a reference to the first church and to the headquarters of the apostles. So then Paul went up Mount Zion to the church and then afterwards went down to, to Antioch in Syria. And he went down by land to Antioch in Syria. And Antioch, remember, was Paul's sending church. And with his arrival now back in Antioch, his second missionary journey is now complete. But Luke doesn't even seem to let Paul catch his breath. He immediately goes out again. Now on his third missionary journey. Remember on the second missionary journey in Acts 16.6, 6, the Holy Spirit had prevented Paul from traveling west into Asia but now he had divine consent, so he traveled directly towards Ephesus as he said he would. Lord willing. But first he went through Galatia and Phrygia, places he'd visited earlier, to churches that he had planted earlier, in order, we are told, to strengthen all of the disciples. Now again and again, we've seen Paul, Paul plant churches and then go back to the region where he planted them. And here we see him doing it yet again. Paul has come back to this region in order to build up the church to continue the ministry that began in Acts chapter 15. Again, this was a, it was a journey of some 2,400 kilometers from Corinth to Ephesus to, to, um, to, to Caesarea to Antioch, and then to Galatia and Phrygia, and then back, I'm doing all that backwards as the map was here in front of me, reverse that, and then back to Ephesus. 2,400 kilometers in seven verses. Well, what's happening here? What is, what is Paul doing? Well, Paul is, is showing the importance, not just of evangelism, but of discipleship. They're both vitally important aspects of ministry. Paul was, was not, oh, just my duty, I need to go back and deal with these people. No, he genuinely loved the church. And he loved the individual churches that he planted. He loved the people of God. And so he was not eager to get away, but to go back to these churches, to these, these beloved brothers and sisters who he knew and to minister to them personally. And so he keeps going back again and again. I think this is, this is important for us to remember that the Great Commission is not just for evangelism. It's for discipleship. What we're commanded in, in Matthew 28, not, not specifically to make converts, but to make disciples. To make disciples and to, to baptize them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all the things that the Lord has commanded. May we as a church, may, may all of us, be about the business of evangelism and discipleship. Now, I've spoken about this many, many times, but, but in, in Ephesians chapter Four, verses 11 to 13, we're told that the Lord gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. 
So brothers and sisters, the, the, the task that, that Pastor Joshua and I have as shepherds and teachers is to equip the saints, to equip you for ministry. So in that sense, we are not the ministers, we are the assistant ministers, and you are the ministers. That this is what it means, again, to be part of the local church. We all serve in different ways, but we all serve the same God, and we all serve the, the same, and, and for most of us here, the same local church, and for all of us who are Christians here, we serve the same universal church. Now let's look at, at verses 24 to 28. Apollos' ministry in Ephesus and Corinth and Priscilla and Aquila's ministry to Apollos. Luke now turns to focus on Ephesus, and, and this city is going to be the focus for the next two chapters, all the way to the end of chapter 20. While Paul was completing his journey, another missionary arrived in Ephesus. Apollos, Luke tells us, was from Alexandria, from, from northern Egypt. And Alexandria was another prominent city in the Roman Empire. It was center the, the, of, of education. It was known for its, its massive library. I was able to visit there several years ago. It's, it's, the original library was destroyed, but they still have many of the same early, early manuscripts that were there even, even from back from the 3rd century B.C. Apollos, we are told, was, was eloquent, and was competent in the scriptures. He was, was a gifted orator. And, and literally he was, it says competent, but literally he says he was, it was powerful in the writings of the Old Testament. And so Apollos was, was one of the well-educated Jews in that region. But his understanding went, went far beyond most of the rest of his countrymen. Because when it says that, that when Luke says that he was powerful in the writings means in this context that he understood the Old Testament promises about Jesus Christ. We'll see that in a second. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Apollos was clearly a Christian. He was fervent in spirit. And I believe here when it says fervent in spirit, the ESV, for some reason, renders it with a small s, but I believe this is fervent in spirit, capital S. In Acts 6.10, we read, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And this refer, that's capital S in the ESV. So I don't, I don't know why there's the discrepancy there, but I believe, I believe this, that what's happening here is, is he's actually working in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was fervent in the spirit. And it, notice he taught accurately the things about Jesus. So again, he was able to teach how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. But there was a deficiency in Apollos' understanding. He only knew the baptism of John. So he was a true disciple of Jesus Christ, but his Christian doctrine was not fully developed. As Daryl Bach says, his, his preaching was, was not inaccurate, it was merely incomplete. And likely he didn't know about the baptism of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that is commanded by Christ. He only knew John's baptism of repentance. Now possibly he didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Which is ironic 
if I'm, if I'm accurate and if I'm right in saying that he was serving in the Spirit, that he, he was serving in the Spirit, but he didn't know that there was an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this, as you think about in the broader context, in what happens in chapter 19, 1 to 7, how we meet another group of disciples, as we'll see, disciples of John, who only knew about the baptism of John, and that they didn't, he said they don't even know about the Holy Spirit. In that sense, very likely the, the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit. But they're, they're to be compared and contrasted with Apollos because from the context, because, because Paul then has to explain to them that Jesus was the fulfillment of the teaching of, of John the Baptist, that these disciples were not yet Christians. Okay, more on that next week. But here we have Apollos, again, who was a Christian but his theology was not fully developed. Now, I think we need to remember here that, that, this is, this, that in the book of Acts, this is, this is a time of, of transition, right? And this, this is a narrative. It's not meant to be prescriptive on the way that things always are. Okay, this was, it was a time of, of, of a transition with the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We'll see, again, next week, Lord willing, we'll see um, that, that we'll see the um, the Ephesian Pentecost, as, as again we'll see next week. But what we see happening here is we, we see this man again, he was faithful in preaching the word, but he, he needed to grow in his understanding. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So he'd been accurate before, to an extent, and now he was more accurate. He was able to be more accurate in his understanding. He was accurate about Jesus, but needed to be more accurate in the understanding of how to walk before the Lord. And again, very likely the importance of, of baptism as well as well as possibly as other things. But notice here the fact that it's Priscilla and Aquila. We talked about this last week with, with Priscilla and Aquila, that, that most of the times when they're mentioned, she's actually mentioned first. Okay, that was very countercultural. Okay, but it actually it, it's significant here because Luke is showing us the variety of roles that women played in early Christianity. Now, again, we need to be careful because this is a description of what took place. This is not prescriptive. But I think by implication, you can see there, there's no sense that there, there's, a, there's no aspersions cast on, on what took place here that, that this is actually affirmed. And I think it's helpful for us to, to think about, about the role of women in the church today. You know, as I think about the ministry that, that Jane and I have, how when we, we do counseling together, it's primarily, it's, it's pre-engagement, pre-marital or marital counseling that we do with other couples. We, we do it together. And, and Jane doesn't just sit here there with her hands over her mouth. Jane participates in the discussion. And Jane, actually, she also has, Jane also at times teaches me as well. There's things that, that many things that I learned from my wife. So, so when we hear the, 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 the instructions about women being silent, again, it's, it's, it's in the churches. There, there, there's no command against, against women. It's, it's a woman who's usurping authority um, over men. But women, I, I want to just, just encourage you for your ministry in this church. The, the ministry, again, it's, especially in the, in, this, in the spheres that, that are clearly prescribed in Scripture of of, of ministering amongst each other. And I get snippets 
of that and with the conversation that takes place in the Bible study in our home. And I see the way the women of this church come alongside each other. I, I see this and with, with, with Dana's ministry and of counseling in the church. And, and again, not just in, in formal ministries, but, but the, the one another is being practiced. That the, the church is loving and serving one another. And women, you are a vital part of that. Again, this is so, this is so countercultural. Right? Not just countercultural from, from what we, we, we see in the past, but what we, from what we see today. With the, the feminism in our culture of, of I am woman, hear me roar. This is so different from what we see worked out in the pages of Scripture, what we see worked out in the life of the local church. And I just want to praise God for the, for the women of this church. I think we, we see here, too, the, 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 the example that we see in the warning, really, we see of, of Apollos. He was, he was a teacher, right? He was, it was out evangelizing, as we all should be. But he hadn't yet arrived in his, in his doctrinal formulations. It may none of us ever dream that we have arrived. You know, I remember as a, as a younger Christian thinking, okay, I get it now. It just shows how much I didn't get it. I didn't fully understand. I still don't fully understand. There, there, there are things that, that, that I'm grappling now with the scripture with the, the simplicity of God and the, the inseparable operations of, of the Trinity, things that, that, that I didn't even know were, were issues before, but it's, it's, it's wonderful. And as, as we're working through the, the, um, our statement of faith and, and the 1689 London Baptist Confession, I'm finding my, my understanding is, is being stretched in, in ways that, that I never even knew it needed to be stretched. And that would be true for all of us. In fact, all of eternity won't be enough for us to, to delve into the depths of the wonder of the Trinity and the glory of the gospel and countless other vitally important doctrines. But we will wonder at these things forever and ever and ever and still not arrive at the depths of the glory of what God's word teaches. But we also see here an example for us in the way that Priscilla and Aquila respond to Apollos. We, we see an example of, of how we really need to respond to others who differ from us in secondary issues. Notice that they didn't correct him publicly, but they took him aside and talked to him privately. The, the church had, had the, the, the universal church had so much of beating each other up over public, over social media and preaching against other churches and they were sponsoring the whole COVID thing. But the reality is these are secondary issues. We need to remember that our brothers and sisters in Christ are our brothers and sisters in Christ, not because they agree with us in everything, but because they're trusting in Christ. And because there, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And even our Presbyterian brothers who are wrong about baptism, they're actually saved. And they need to remember that we're saved too. Not because we've got it all together, but because of Christ. And so I think here we, we see an example that, that Priscilla and Aquila, they did not rebuke Apollos publicly. They're, they're, they're 
could have been a time for that if he was undermining the gospel or some foundational doctrine, but they, they took him aside privately and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And we need to remember that, that for some people, everything is primary. But everything, every doctrine is not a life and death issue. Everything in, in every doctrine is not a gospel issue. We, there's freedom within the universal church for us to, to disagree with others. And we're probably all of us will find out ways that we were wrong. In fact, I'm sure of it. And then verse 27. When Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And so he wanted to now go west, from your perspective, to go west across the Aegean Sea. And this, this, this region of Achaia refers to Corinth, which was in the province of Achaia. And remember from, from last week, we, or two weeks ago, we saw the Priscilla and Aquila were, were known there. And so they're obviously part of this, this letter of introduction that, that at this time when someone went to another church, they'd go with letters of introduction. In fact, it still takes place in some circles. In fact, I got a letter of introduction from Neharitz's pastor. And so, Lord willing, she's going to be taking out membership in July. So it still happens, an email of introduction. And so when Priscilla, rather when, when Apollos went there, we're told that he taught Christians, right? He, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And so he was involved in a, in a very parallel ministry to Paul's at this point. He was, he, he, was, he was discipling the church. He was doing a lot of what, of what Paul had done. But notice that is those who through grace believed. This is God's sovereignty over salvation. As, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of God's sovereign grace. And so nobody can, can take credit for any part of it, whether it's the minister or the one who is ministered to. It is all ultimately a work of the Lord. And we need to remember that that will greatly help us to keep us humble when we see God at work through us and to keep us trusting when things don't work out the way we hoped. Our personal ministry is not as quote-unquote successful as we would like it to be. And so he was discipling the church. And also notice that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now he is doing exactly the same thing that Paul had been doing. But he was doing it more eloquently than Paul. And so the, the difference, and this is again, this is what led to the, the disagreement within the, the Corinthian church. They were, they were saying, well, Apollos he's, Apollos, he's the eloquent one. Look at, look at that simple gospel that Paul preaches. We, we, we want to side with Apollos. He's got the words. Again, this is not Apollos' fault. This is not something that he invited on himself. He was simply gifted to the Lord to serve in the ministry that God had given him. But these divisive Corinthians were the ones who were aligning themselves. And we see this, we see this today. Of I am of so-and-so, I am of so-and-so. But it's all forgetting 
that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church and it is his church. And whatever local church we're a part of, whatever ministry you, you like to read or, or listen to on the, on the internet, it's part of the same church, belongs to the same Lord, and we all have the same purpose to advance the kingdom of God by the grace of God for his glory, for his glory, not for ours, and certainly not for the, the men who are leading these ministries. So like Paul, Apollos was showing from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And there, there's no rivalry. There's no sibling rivalry between Paul and Apollos. Because they're, they're worshiping and serving the same Lord together. And I think by extension we can see here that there was no rivalry, rivalry either between Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. Right? They're, they're behind the scenes. This was privately. Nobody in the church ever knew. Very likely, what, what, unless Apollos told them. They never, they never said, hey, we set that Apollos guy straight. You think he's good? Well, he was nothing before he came to us. But the reality is, he, he was ministered to by this couple, by Priscilla and Aquila. And again, they don't have the prominence of a, of a Paul or an Apollos, but they served a vitally important role. Let's just back up and think about the life of Priscilla and Aquila. We're told in Acts 18 that they were exiled from their home in Rome. They were exiles, but they didn't just sit there in, in Corinth and then Ephesus wringing their hands saying, woe is us, we want to go home. They were busy. They were about the ministry of God. They were serving God in the, the context that the Lord's providence had placed them. That Their eyes weren't looking over the horizon to another city or another place. Their eyes weren't even looking beyond that necessarily, where they were focused on eternal, on eternal life and on the glory, but it's because of that that they're able to, to serve God in their context. They were so heavenly-minded that they were far more earthly good. May we remember that we are all pilgrims and strangers. May we remember that this is not our home. And we will only be truly home when we are at home with the Lord. And until that time, we are to serve as ambassadors, as representatives of King Jesus, wherever he and his providence places us. And so, so may the Lord help us to, to strike the balance between being too at home in the world that we're, we're too comfortable here, and of being too homesick for heaven, that we forget our ministry and our mission in this life. So Apollos, and the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila to Apollos, is I think exemplary for us in this. Now next week, we're, we're going to see how Paul is going to minister to, to a group that is in many ways parallel to Apollos, as I mentioned earlier. They're disciples who only knew of, of John's baptism, and they didn't know about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But in this case, again, they were unbelievers who, in whom the Holy Spirit was not yet at work. But we see here, and we'll see again next week, that, that, that in this church and in, in every gospel-preaching church in the city and this country around the world, God's faithful servants are at work 
serving the universal church. And by serving her, they're serving the Lord. Now, you might not be able to, to none of us really can, can teach the scriptures like Paul or Apollos or Priscilla and Aquila or even like your lowly pastors. But this church needs people who are gifted in faith too. You may not be able to pray like those who gather at the hospital or, or at our Bible studies and prayer meetings, but the church needs people who are gifted in service too. You may not be able to serve like those who serve in the music ministry or, or in the building committee, but the church needs givers. Do you get the picture? Some people in this church serve faithfully and you don't even know it. I get to see it a lot of the time because I'm here most of the time. But the, the reason why this, this room is not covered in dust and that there's not garbage overflowing the garbage bins is because, because of one of you, and I know who it is for this week, cleaned up. Quietly, no fanfare. Simple service of the Lord. In a few moments, you are going to receive the Lord's Supper. You're going to drink from a cup that somebody filled for you. It didn't fill itself. You probably don't even know who did it. And you afterwards, I hope, are going to enjoy a fellowship meal. Now, that, that food didn't cook itself. It was prepared lovingly by somebody in the church who wanted to be hospitable to you and to, to serve you by providing food for you. The fact that you were able to get that door open means that somebody on the building committee was at work, either tinkering with a lock or, or putting oil in the hinges. This is, this is all the ministry of the church. The reason why, the, why it's not blistering hot in the summer and freezing cold in winter is because you were giving. And so the bills get paid. And this is all part of the, the ministry of the local church. I've got a few extra pounds because you are giving. Maybe you can tail back a little bit on that. I'm just kidding. But maybe I should anyway. But, but the fact of the matter is that the church is made up of, of all of us. And again, we're, we're all part of the body. And, and nobody's more important and nobody's less important. It's just different. And we can say the same thing for, for every true church in this city, in this country, and around the world. And we, we can celebrate them, what God is doing in, in this place and in other places, even amongst people that we disagree with, and people that we disagree with even on important issues. God, in his supreme wisdom, has given, given each one of us wisdom, and he has sovereignly placed us together in this local church to love one another and to work together for the building up of his body because he loves us intimately and he wants his name to be glorified among us. It's really an amazingly wise plan, isn't it? God is, um, only God in his omniscience could have thought of something so beautiful. And only God in his omnipotence could have pulled something so wonderful off. Only God in his love, his power, could transform weak and rebellious people to love him and to love each other like that. May he cause his work in and through us to abound for his glory. As I close, I just want to, want to ask Again, each one of us, to, to, to ask ourselves, what are you doing? And I'm not thinking about anybody specifically. What are you doing? What is your role in this body? 
And what is your motivation? A church serving together is a beautiful thing. And that's glorious. But that is not the ultimate reason. The church is not just a, a service organization like Rotary or the Lions Club. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, what is that more excellent way? He answers it in 1 Corinthians 13. Love. Love is the more excellent way. Love for God and love for one another. What did Jesus say in John 13, 34, and 35? He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. The commandment wasn't new. The commandment to love goes back to the Old Testament. What was new is the as I have loved you part. God sent his son to die for the sheep. That was new. And so Jesus provided the, the standard and the motivation for loving one another. And he also provided the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reality is all of us fall woefully short of that standard. But Jesus Christ has fulfilled the standard in our place. He has died for our failures and he has lived a life to fill up what was lacking and is lacking in our service. So it's a reminder that, that you and I need the gospel. We need the gospel because of our lack of love. We need the gospel as we take the Lord's Supper together because it, it motivates us. And I would encourage you, as you take the Lord's Supper today, just, it's, it, we did this a couple times when we pulled out the pews for the, the refurbishing. We had, we had um, just chairs in here. We were able to sit in a circle for the Lord's Supper. It was wonderful. I just want to encourage you, just don't just focus on the back of the head of, of the person in front of you. Just turn around and look at each other. And as you, as you eat the bread and as you drink the cup, and to remember that, that Christ died not just for you individually, but he died for your brothers and sisters. And so as you, as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, remember the love of God and ask God to fill you with love for one another that makes you eager to, to, excuse me, to want to serve one another for the glory of God. We need the gospel. Every one of us needs the gospel because the gospel motivates us. The gospel empowers us into that love to which we've been called. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and almighty God, we praise you for the gospel. Lord, as we are about to celebrate the Lord's table together to remember your life and your death and to anticipate your return. Fill us with love for you that overflows with love for each other. Make us eager to serve one another, not merely out of a sense of duty, but as a delight of, of gospel love. Do that in us through the power of your Holy Spirit so that you might be glorified in this church. And that we pray that you do this, do the same thing in, in every true church in this city, in this country, around the world, that your name might be exalted, that your kingdom would be advanced for the glory of your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.